In soccer, Alan Cawley and Fergal Brennan on the top of the table clash as Man City take on Chelsea. Let's play the game. I'm always in for a good fight, but I'm also always uh, very realistic. If you look back and then to our last games, when we have our squad, when we feel good, when we're in good shape, we, we are always up for, 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 for a good fight with Man City and we will always dare to, to push them to the limit and to ask some questions that they don't like uh, maybe to answer. We've Alan Lewis on another historic win for Irish cricket. Jane Mangan talks racing and Michael Corcoran is ready for cast versus Munster. If you want to get in touch, you can text us on 51552 or tweet at GameOn2FM. GameOn on 2FM. Now, welcome along. I would like to start the programme by remembering Ashling Murphy, a young woman loved by everyone who knew her, a teacher, a talented musician and a camogie player with Kilcormer Kalahi, a young woman at the start of her life. Right now, all around the country, clubs, societies and people are holding vigils for Ashling this evening and we are thinking of everybody who is hurting right now. She is in her thoughts and so are her family. We are going to start the programme now with tennis and the news today that Novak Djokovic has had his appeal against the latest cancellation of his visa into Australia transferred to Australia's federal court. A full hearing is due to take place on Sunday morning. But as things stand, Djokovic faces deportation and will not defend his title next week. Stephen Higgins, tennis journalist, is with me in studio. Stephen... Give me your prediction. We've been talking all week about this and going over and back, flip-flopping on whether or not Djokovic will actually play in the Australian Open. Are we going to see him? Well, like a lot of topics these days, I've looked at a few YouTube videos and I'm now an expert in Australian immigration law, <laughs> so I can give you a fantastic one then. From what I've seen, the minister has broad power to make that decision that this was preempted beforehand. After kind of reminiscent of the play Waiting for Godot or some sort of interminable wait at about seven in the morning, this morning our time, finally Alex Hawke, the Minister for Immigration of Australia, cancelled Novak Djokovic's visa again in the evening hours of Friday in Australia, so a bit like the Friday night dump that you sometimes hear about with political announcements. Extraordinarily, there was a court hearing at nine o'clock at night and the same judge, Anthony Kelly, went back into the courtroom. They heard a hearing again as the lawyers tried to apply for an injunction to stop Djokovic being thrown out of the country, to stop him going back into detention. The situation we have now is Djokovic didn't have to go back into detention last night, but he has to meet with immigration officials in the coming morning on Saturday morning in Australia and there will be another hearing on Sunday. Bear in mind the draw is on Monday and Djokovic is scheduled to play on Monday. So it would seem that he has run out of time, whatever happens. But of course, what our predictions have been like for this whole situation. Well, that's it, exactly. And given the character that he is as well, and the fact that he's gone this far and the stakes are pretty high now, like, can you imagine him just giving up now at this stage? 
It's probably not in character. Uh, Martina Vratilova was interviewed on Australian television a few days ago and, you know, she's a very reasonable, very, you know, esteemed person. And she kind of put it bluntly of, you know, you just go home, like at this stage, you know, <laughs> if, if she was him, she'd just go home, but he doesn't think like her. Uh, it's such a mess. Even if we just took into account of, say, the draw has been held for the Australian Open. So there were lots of different variations of what would happen depending on this. So if Djokovic had withdrawn from the tournament before the draw was held, it was fairly straightforward. Daniel Medvedev, number two, would just move to number one and we'd all get on with our lives. Since the draw has taken place, if he withdraws at the moment, Andrei Rublev, the number five, would move into his place. If, because the order of play hasn't come out, if the order of play comes out and then Djokovic withdraws, then a lucky loser would get his spot. Uh, and so again, you this kind of... We were talking this before. It would have been absolutely lovely if before the tournament, Novak Djokovic had decided to either get vaccinated or skip the tournament and save us all this strife. We wouldn't have got to talk to you now for four days in a row, I'd say, at this stage, Stephen, though. <laughs> That's a fair point. <laughs> OK, well, we're going to keep an eye on it. As Stephen said, it isn't over yet, but we do know that the Australian Open is going to take place as scheduled next week. And we have a men's tournament and a women's tournament. And I'd say if Djokovic does go home, we'll be able to focus on the tennis then. If he stays around, it'll continue to be um, a circus. But just given... The um, the situation, the fact that there are a group of players who have been getting going about their business, preparing for this tournament. If Djokovic isn't in it, who do you think will be the one to prevail? And even if he was in it, would he be the one that would prevail? Yeah, this might be kind of considered controversial in tennis circles, the, the very small tennis circles. But uh, <laughs> I actually think if Djokovic turned up on Monday and somehow got through this maelstrom of issues, that Daniel Medvedev would be the favourite to win the tournament in that. Daniel Medvedev, if people remember, he won the US Open last year. He halted Novak Djokovic's charge to win the calendar Grand Slam. Uh, he's started this year in brilliant form as well. He led a, a fairly weakened Russia team to the semi-finals of the ATP Cup. Uh, he's just a superstar. He's the number one in waiting. He has enormous confidence from beating Djokovic a number of times. He is, if Djokovic is the best hardcore player in the world, just about, Bevedev is certainly the second best. He made the final last year. Uh, he has a, he's a good draw as well to get through, particularly in the first week or so. There's, there's actually... There's almost no one I could see that would beat him unless unless there's a shock up to about the semi-final stage. So I think the favourite would be Daniel Medvedev, even if Djokovic makes it in this current situation. Going past Medvedev, I think the only realistic contenders that you'd say would be Alexander Zverev or Rafael Nadal. So Zverev is not far off Medvedev. Bear in mind, he won the Olympic gold medal beating Djokovic on the way and he won the ATP finals at the end of the year. He is excellent on hard courts. He is one of the obviously top three players on hard courts. He knows he can beat both Djokovic and Medvedev on hard courts under the right conditions. Again, his draw isn't too bad at all. And then there was Rafael Nadal, who, uh, in spite of a, a poor reporter who was tired, who asked the question saying that he hadn't been to a final since 2009, he'd actually been to four finals since 2009. But I'll give him a break. It's, we've all, we're all exhausted. But Nadal... This isn't his greatest Grand Slam, but he is a factor here. You know, he's generally only lost to people like Djokovic or Federer, Federer in the famous final a few years back. So he looked quite good as he won a tournament in Melbourne on the way into the tournament. Uh, if he's fit, if he's over the left foot injury that ended his, curtailed his 2021 season and he's over his COVID infection from around Christmas time, 
you know, let's see. Like, you know, he just needs a few matches to see what his fitness is like. He's obviously a five-set expert. We all know what he's aiming for. It's remarkable because, of course, he's on 20 Grand Slam titles and his chief rival on 20 Grand Slams may not be playing the tournament at all. So we could be in this peculiar situation where Rafael Nadal moves on to 21 Grand Slams at the expense of Novak Djokovic. It's quite interesting because nobody's been talking about that so he's been able to go under the radar whereas if things were a little bit different there might have been a little bit of pressure on him. Yeah, it's actually funny. In some ways, it's weird to think of Rafa Nadal as a sleeper person <laughs> in a tournament, but because obviously he took the long break and his age and his record in Australia is still very good, but not quite as good as some of the other Grand Slams. He, he is definitely one to watch. But the thing is, it's a big ask, as we know. Best of five sets is such a strain. If you're talking now, think about it as well. He's 35. So you have Daniel Medvedev and Alexander Zverev are 10 years younger than him. They are absolutely in their prime. They're playing really well. They're probably playing the best they have played in their careers at the same time. So they would clearly be the ones next in line. So if, if I was guessing, uh, I would think that would be one of those two will probably win the title. Okay. Well, as always, Stephen, we will have this recorded and we'll play it back to you in a couple of weeks and we'll let you know how your predictions went. So what about the women's side of things? Yeah, so one issue that's not going to be troubling Ash Barty will be visa problems since she is a native Australian player. And she's also clearly the best women's player in the world, has extended her lead in the rankings and won a title coming into the tournament as well. She is the clear favourite to win. She won Wimbledon last year, so this will be her third major if she can get it after Roland Garros. Um, her draw is pretty good early on, but the probably what, what everyone would be hoping for is the clash of the tournament. In the fourth round, she would be scheduled or projected to meet Naomi Osaka. If Naomi Osaka can find the form of old or even somewhat of the form of old to get to that point. Osaka took a long break for mental health issues towards the end of last season. She actually said that she didn't think she'd be back to tennis this early, but she missed it so much and she's in a much more positive mindset it's great to see she kind of feels probably revitalized maybe reinvigorated she is the two-time Australian Open champion she is probably on at her best the best hardcore player on the women's side so it would be fantastic to see if she could find some of that magic but it might be a tournament too soon because she pulled out of a warm-up tournament with a strain because obviously she hasn't played matches in a lot of months so it is a bit of an ask for her to get there but we'd love to see that what about Emma Raducanu? Like, she's in the headlines still because of her heroics last year. Have we seen enough of her to make a judgment on how much potential? You know, we're still talking potential really here. She's so young. In fairness, I think there's, I think you're, you're right to question either side of it and be fair. Is it too much of all the sponsorships and the attention giving how young she is? But also, she's so young, why would you write off or make big judgments about her? Like, in some ways, it concerns me when I see kind of 10, 15, 20 sponsorship deals and she's only played a few tournaments. Now, she, of course, she did win the US Open, but still, she's so new to all this. But then, on the other hand, what, you'd refuse the sponsorship uh, agreements? I, I wouldn't anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, I watched her the other night. Um, it wasn't great. She, she struggled since she won the US Open. She won a couple of matches towards the end of last season. But she played Elena Rybakina and she lost 6-love, six 6-1. Six and she kind of looked all over the place. And... It would be a concern. She doesn't look... There's a few players, actually. Irina Sabalenka, surprisingly, the world number two. She's also someone who looks completely out of sorts. Her serve was so poor, she had to resort to underarm serves, actually by choice, as opposed to as a shock tactic. So there's a few players on the other side of, say, an Ash Barty coming in in fairly poor form, and it would be quite an ask of them to make deep runs. And Raducanu is one of them. 
I would be surprised. I mean, it'd be a great story if she can find some form, but the way she's playing at the moment doesn't look like she's going to be going back to back with majors. Okay, give us a prediction then for the women's side of things. I would go uh, unsurprising with Ash Barty, but I would look out for people like Annette Contevite, who's in amazing form and she's done a lot of damage. Rybakina, maybe as well. And some uh, Garvinia Mugrutha and Barbara Krajikova would be the kind of ones I'd be looking at of they could shock. Bear in mind in a women's draw, it's very common for players to come through unheralded and win. So it's not a dead cert by any means that the world number one is just going to walk along and stroll along to another Grand Slam title. Why is it, do we see that more on in the women's game than the men's game? I, I actually think almost essentially it's the best of three as opposed to the best of five. Because if you think about it, and, and Nadal and a few of them have talked about it before, and Djokovic obviously was the king of this, it is incredibly hard to beat the best players in the world and win three sets against them. But since most of the tour is best of three, of course a player can have two great sets and beat someone. So I think a lot of it is just to do it. Could you beat Ash Barty for three sets out of five or could you beat her over two sets you probably could beat her over two sets if you were playing at your best and she was a bit below but to get three sets out of her is a challenge so I think that's the same with the men can you get three sets out of Rafa Nadal at Roland Garros very unlikely can you get three sets out of Novak off which is straight open very unlikely so I think a lot of it is to do with that aspect and just before we finish up Stephen a quick word on Andy Murray he's reached his first ATP Tour final for more than two years with a three set win over um, in Sydney in the Sydney Tennis Classic yeah it's it's great to see him back uh, a fellow guy with a metal hip um, <laughs> do, you- doing a lot better than I've done <laughs> with my metal hip but uh, no I watched it he he the only thing with Andy, it's brilliant to see him back. Obviously, his determination is fantastic and the ability and, and the achievements are absolutely astonishing in his career. The way he plays, it's such a grind. Even the match day, you know, it's going to three sets. He still, you know, refrains from kind of being as aggressive as he can be. And so at his age, given the health things, he's just obviously, I absolutely want him to succeed. I'd love him to win lots and lots of terms. But I just think it's so much harder for him to win points quickly as opposed to a Djokovic, a Federer, and even Nadal at times as well. They're just more aggressive. There's less wear on the body. They can get through matches faster. So I hope... I hope he has a great season, but I think that that'll be the issue for him is do the matches become too much of a grind and it start to kind of wear down the body. Okay, sounds like it's a bit of a slog, Stephen. A bit like the Djokovic story for the last week. <laughs> Stephen Higgins, thank you so much. We're going to take a very quick break. Welcome back. It's time to turn our attention to cricket and overnight COVID hit Ireland beat the West Indies in a rain affected second ODI in Jamaica to set up a series decider and to talk through the action. I'm delighted to say that Alan Lewis is with me on the line. Alan, how are you? I'm very good, Marie, after that victory last evening. Uh, Great to talk to you. So look, just to... um, I, I'm not sure from from your point of view, Alan. Was it was it expected, just given the form that Ireland have been in over the last while? Well, probably not. But I think what you're talking about, obviously, it's the ODI format. We've been we've been very slack in the T20 format, and that's something that has to be addressed. But uh, in the ODI format, we've actually been good. You know, with victories over South Africa, England, and now the West Indies. So it's a format that suits us a wee bit better. It certainly seems. 
And what does that mean, though, Alan? Like, if it if it suits us better, are we better off focusing on that a little bit more? Well, you've got to focus on all formats now, and you've got to try and find formulas for all formats. And obviously, we play mostly white ball cricket, and our T20 cricket has clearly been disappointing. But you know, this format that we're in the World Series League, and and again, these these. These victories are very important in terms of even World Cup qualifications. Obviously, we've played a lot of games, but we've had five victories, two no results. So we're in reasonable shape. And if we can get a series win on Sunday, you know, it'll lift spirits for, you know, home series during this summer. So, you know, it's really, it's really good for the team. COVID complicates everything, as we know, and it has been particularly hard on this Ireland team. And even in uh, yesterday's game, no Andy Balburnie, Lorcan Tucker, Simi Singh, Ben White, but they coped relatively well. Well, they really did. And I think like the one thing that I noticed, there seemed to be, you know, a real energy about the team. It was a little bit like a, you know, a football club with a new manager, but Paul Sterling came in and he's got vast experience. He's got a great cricket brain, but there was seemed to be, you know, a renewed freshness and vigour and that was really evident in the field. He was innovative, he was attacking, he took a great catch at slip himself uh, and, you know, even the batting itself was aggressive from outset. Uh, Andy McBride really batted well, he had a fantastic game, obviously man of the match, but, you know, he took on the left-arm spin of Hussein, which was, which was vital in the circumstance. And then, of course, Harry Tector at 22 years of age Sixth ODI 50 and nine matches averaging over 50. He's in great form. And, you know, with every match that, that goes with him, he's looking to the manner born. Yeah, he really is. And just like, as you said, 22 years of age, is it just a case that the more he plays, the better he gets and the more he grows in confidence? Well, I think you have to have the skill in the first outset. And the one thing I know about him, he's a gutsy cricketer. It's exactly the same as Andy McBride. They share that ingredient and you need that. Sometimes you need to be a scrapper. And, uh, like, obviously, he's he's got a very good technique. He's clearly one of Ireland's best batsmen. And he's 22 years old, and he's proving it now. And there was a nice balance to what they did. I think, you know, looking into the next game, obviously, the, the two tosses, Paul Sterling acknowledged that in the post-match interviews. You know, it's they've won both tosses. The pitch gets easier as, as time goes on. So that will be a vital component. Curtis Camper looked a little out, out of sorts at five. I think maybe they might look at maybe moving Dockrell up to up to five for this last match. And, you know, the bowling department has done well. So, you know, when you consider, as you say, the people you've mentioned there that have been missing, uh, it augurs well. Now, I also did say that, that um, COVID complicates things. So Paul Sterling was stand-in captain. You mentioned how good he was. He missed the first ODI himself with COVID. Do we know is that... Is that is he going to be taking up that role again, or, or have we figured that one out yet? Oh no, well I don't think I don't think that will be figured out at this stage. I think you know what was most important yesterday, and I think the side needed it. Just needs a little bit of a lift, and you know perhaps you know and you know, the, the, the captain Sterling coming in maybe created that. Maybe the new coach created. Well, there certainly looked a new sense of vigour about the team. You can even hear it audibly. Obviously, we've got stump mics that you can hear these sorts of things, but they were much more audible. Uh, and obviously, it was it was, it was was a measure of the Josh Littles on top of his game. He really is box office. And Craig Young has been so consistent over the last two years, admittedly in a different role because he came in first change. And the West Indies have struggled with the bat. You sound pretty confident now. So, series decider on Sunday. Uh, what do you reckon? Well, 
I think, again, the toss is going to be very important because we haven't seen Ireland back in what are more difficult conditions. The West Indies have lost four wickets in the first 20 overs in both games. And when you do that in, in ODI cricket, you struggle to post any sort of total because, in honesty, from 165 for two in the first game, Ireland being bowled out for 245, it was a massive opportunity to win the game. Uh, so, technically, really, they could be potentially 2-0 up there, not. They let West Indies get away, having had them by the jugular yesterday, but again, much more calm in reply yesterday. So I'm quietly confident. And then just in terms of the overall picture, Alan, like we know after the disappointment of the World Cup that there were reviews and uh, the coach departed and, you know, an interim coach has stepped in. Do you feel now that, like, one big victory can go an awful long way but do you feel that now this Ireland cricket team can build on 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 what happened yesterday well I hope they do because there's you know there's nothing like victories you know to, to pull aside forward and now they've got a chance to clinch a series win and Paul Sterling was certainly upbeat about that yesterday in the post-match interview whilst acknowledging the toss issue is, is, is a big thing in Sabina Park however you know they've, they've just got to keep and hope hope to come up to keep going on this upward trajectory, particularly in their ODI cricket, because they can be very pleased with that. The review, we still have to hear the the outcome of the review. There's a new coach in place. I'm pleased, you know, in the sense that he's a younger man. He's ambitious. uh, He'll want to do things himself to build his own career. Uh, And again, that's the sort of thing that happened in the past. As an example, A.D. Burrow was 38, 39 years of age when he came in. So it was sad to see Graham Ford leaving but in terms of being heartened and encouraged the CV of the new coach looks good and I'm sure he'll be very anxious to push forward with the result that he's seen yesterday and some of the young players that he's going to be dealing with. Yeah for sure and there's a huge amount of cricket happening in 2022 and actually even just before we finish up the Ireland under-19s are going to begin their ICC under-19 World Cup campaign tomorrow as well against Uganda so plenty going on. Oh so much going on and there'll be so anxious to get away to a good start and of course the, the, the other Tector brother is captaining that team they have the unique privilege of uh, as a family having three of them that have captained under 19 teams it's remarkable really to think that that's happened so uh, they've, they've had a number of warm up games they've gradually kind of worked themselves into the they'll be looking to beat Uganda obviously and then you know two big games against India and uh, South Africa so you know, it's a fantastic opportunity for them. I hope they just go out there and play with a smile on their face because, again, in any of these types of tournaments, you're looking for maybe the next star that's going to come into the international team. So, but they'll be tough assignments, those two. But they're going to they're going to really enjoy it. Very good. Uh, it sounds very positive, and uh, so does your prediction of the weekend as well, Alan. Thank you so much for joining us. We will no doubt talk to you very very soon. We're going to take a very quick break, and then we're back with football. Game on on 2FM With Green Farm Being up to 90 isn't real The protein in our range is Get real Game on on 2FM
Now, welcome back to Game On with me, Marie Crow. It's time now to talk football and I'm delighted to say that I am joined on the line by journalist Fergal Brennan and also former professional footballer Alan Cawley. Fergal, I'm going to go to you first because I was going to start with the massive game at the weekend, Manchester City and Chelsea, but just a couple of hours ago it popped up on the news that Gary Neville has joined the Labour Party and he hasn't ruled out running for the mayor of Manchester. When I think of this, I just think of that time he went into management and the words, what could possibly go wrong, come to mind. Uh, indeed. Um, I think the way that he's kind of carried himself in, the, in his early punditry career, there's been a lot of comments that, is he making a play for politics? Is he someone that is looking to make these comments for a reason, to get noticed, to maybe take a, a next step? It, it is a bit of a, a mad situation that we're talking about, a, an ex-footballer potentially moving into politics and, and whatever that might hold for him in the future. But he's someone that's been very vocal, obviously during COVID, and he's critical of the UK government. It, it does sound very strange when you, when you throw all those things together, and it probably does sound a bit like a recipe for disaster you know you look back to his his days with Valencia and you think maybe leadership isn't really a good thing for for Gary Neville but um, he's someone that I think is probably interested in it Uh, how it's going to play out or not I I really don't know but um, Valencia fans will probably tell you maybe maybe don't vote for Gary Alan Cawley is with us as well and Alan it's actually something that we see here quite often but it's usually Gaelic footballers running for Fianna Fáil or, or Fianna Gael or something like that it's rare enough that people who have come from professional football uh, backgrounds and probably earned millions and millions go down the politics route. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, you probably heard me chuckling there when you when you <laughs> asked the question to Fergal Marie. Um, it's news to me, as you said, it only broke a couple of hours ago. Yeah, so he's, he has been very vocal and we know Gary Neville is very strong, very opinionated on lots of topics. But where I find him very good is obviously the one that he specialises in as, as football and as a pundit. But he does take a keen interest. He has huge business interests as well in terms of hotels and all sorts of property in Manchester as well. But you only have to look at him over the the course of the pandemic on Twitter and see how vocal he is obviously against Boris Johnson and what's going on in England as well so it's probably something he is very serious about I don't think he would take this on or join the Labour Party just as a kind of on a whim type thing it's probably something he has thought about but sometimes and I'm a huge admirer Neville and I have been for a long time since he got involved in the punditry stuff because obviously it's it's stuff that, that we do ourselves and you, you tune in to Monday Night Football and he's always very good on it himself and Carragher but sometimes I think does he just involve himself in too much or does he have too much to say on too much and this just strikes me as a little bit of that Marie because um, even though as I say he, he has business interests and all sorts of stuff outside of football I just think he gets himself involved in an awful lot of stuff that he probably doesn't need to be getting involved in Yeah I'm like you Alan I absolutely love him on the telly I love his take on football I love his relationship as well with Carragher and, and just everything that they've gone on and I hope that in a way he doesn't become really successful at it and we lose him from uh, football into politics because I'd imagine if you do become successful in politics and it's a road that you take seriously it becomes all consuming so um, Mm. yeah I just like him to stick to football for personal reasons not because I don't think he should have an opinion but because I do like him talking about football yeah, I'm just saying, as I say, I loved I, what him and Carragher have done on Monday Night Football over the past number of years has been absolutely brilliant, the two of them. And, and in some ways, I've kind of, though, 
I've gone, I used to love Gary Neville at the start, but I've kind of gone more for Carragher now because I think Carragher is excellent in what he does and calls out the things he needs to call out. I lost a bit of respect for Neville over the whole Solskjaer thing because I felt he was, he doesn't call it out when he, when he, when he should be calling out certain things. There was a time as well, I think Joe Hart was the England goalkeeper and because he was involved with England and Roy Hodgson that he wasn't calling him out either on certain things. So I don't think you can play both sides. If you're a pundit, you have to call it out for what it is, no matter what your uh, opinion and view is or no matter what your allegiances are to certain aspects of the game just the politics thing he just strikes me as someone that can't sit still Marie he's getting involved Mm -hmm. even I watched the Class 92 and it's a brilliant little documentary but even on that he's so and I know it's it's his club or whatever but he's so hands on he wants to be he strikes me as a bit of a control freak he wants to control everything and unfortunately I don't think he can do that because something's got to give somewhere and something suffers along the lines of you're involved in so much and I just wonder now getting involved in the the politics side of things and I know he does have strong views on on it you only have to look as I say at his Twitter uh, timeline and stuff daily but I just think he gets himself involved in far too much Yeah he doesn't ever seem to sit still or or switch off and to defend him slightly like you know just to compare him to Carragher if it was a situation um, and Stephen Gerrard was manager of Liverpool and the wheels came off I would just be interested to see if Carragher was as loyal to the likes of Gerrard as um, Gary Neville has been to Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer but that's probably something that uh, I don't think he would Marie I I think Carragher would call it out 100% that's why I think Carragher has overtaken Neville I think Carragher is the best pundit around and um, I think he would call it out 100% he's been already critical of Klopp and Liverpool I know he doesn't have as much yeah it's different slightly I, think, yeah, 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 I know it's slightly yeah. but it's still his club it's still his club and I think Neville was very much towards kind of didn't want to kind of call out Solskjaer because he was obviously his teammate but you can't be you can't be everything if you're a pundit you have to call it out Marie and I lost a bit of respect for him during that and also the time when he was doing Monday Night Football and he was involved with England as well he was a lot more easier on English players than he was on maybe foreign lads as well so I don't think you can have both and I think Carragher would 100% if Gerrard is struggling he'll call him out Okay, well, that's something that we'll probably talk about in the future. Fergal Brennan, back to the Premier League. So we had we had a three-horse race for a while and it looked like it was going down to a two-horse race. Is it just Man City's now, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's theirs to throw away in the, in every sense in terms of the lead they've got at the top of the table, the the winning run that they're coming into this game with uh, against Chelsea this weekend. They've just been phenomenal. Um, and you're right in saying that the start of the season and even maybe the other side of the the other side of Christmas it was a two horse possibly even a three horse race I think it's a one horse race now for with, with City I just think they just have more in the tank they've got this huge amount of talent right the way through the squad they're either able to make changes to the starting lineup. if a game isn't going their, their way 60-70 minutes in the, the ability and profile of players that they can bring on Liverpool and Chelsea just, just don't have and I know obviously there's been injury issues there's been Covid setbacks for pretty much every team in the Premier League Pep Guardiola said this morning that there's been a handful of new positive cases in, in his squad um, over the last 48 hours but just that depth and that world-class depth in certain areas where they can turn to somebody that would be a guaranteed starter for 90% of other Premier League teams and they can just give them 15-20 minutes in a game and that can that can tip the balance for them and I think Chelsea have gotten to the back on the horse in the last few weeks they were very good in the in the Carabao Cup both legs to, to get past Tottenham and, and get into the final but there still there still seems to be a, a couple of 
underlying issues there, Tom's Tuchel is, is starting to show a bit of frustration. Um, whereas Man City at the moment, aside from every now and again when they have a freak defeat, like going back to the Crystal Palace game in, in 2021, they don't look like they're going to wobble. Um, and, and it's a big gap between Chelsea and them and Liverpool and them as it stands. And I just think they're just going to put their foot down. They might not win it at a canter. Liverpool or Chelsea might drag them in between now and, and the end of April. But as it stands, they're, they're well away. And there doesn't really seem to be a noticeable uh, weakness in them at the moment. And Alan, as well, when you have Pep Guardiola coming <coughs> out and, and throwing out the compliments like he was with Tuchel today, saying he makes world football better and he learned so much about him, you know that Pep is pretty confident himself as well. He's on the charm offensive, all right, isn't he, Marie? But you look at, um, yeah, Man City have been absolutely amazing. And Guardiola, as we all know, he's the best around. Uh, You look at the form in the last 10, 11 games, unbeaten run. And that's the level that you look at Chelsea's last six games and have drawn four and won two. And and we were calling that kind of a slight little blip, and which it was. But that just goes to show the standard that Man City are hitting, that you can't even afford a couple of draws. And one of those draws was obviously against one of their nearest rivals, Liverpool, as well. And on paper, you might think two all against Liverpool it might not be a bad result, especially when you were losing 2-0 to come back as well. And it just goes to show the standard that City have set, that you can't even afford to drop the odd point here and there. So uh, it's remarkable, really, what Guardiola has done with City. I still think people will always throw at him with the Champions League, and I still think that's his huge aim. Um, but I wouldn't write Chelsea off just yet. Um, the, I know it's a big gap at the moment, but I think, as Fergal says, Chelsea have got back on the horse with the good performances over Spurs, and I think they'll have a strong finish to the end of the season. But it's, a, it's an awful big gap to claw back. But I just wouldn't be writing them off just yet because... Who knows what can happen around the corner. I was hoping that we were going to have one of the best title races that we've seen with the three teams. And unfortunately for Chelsea and Liverpool with COVID and injuries and different things, um, it looks like that's been scuppered. But maybe it's just me kind of wanting to see some sort of a challenge that I don't want to write Chelsea off yet. But hopefully we do still see some sort of a race. Yeah, and Fergal also, Alan Cawley did tip Chelsea at the start of the season for the <laughs> exactly. call. He actually didn't mention that in uh, that last uh, comment that he made. But Fergal, I think, look, what Alan is saying as well, just given COVID and injuries and the depth of squad that Man City have, and, you know, you throw in the African Cup of Nations as well, and watching Liverpool last night against Arsenal, they couldn't seem to really take flight. It does kind of dampen the expectation, really, for what's in store for us as football fans over the next few months. It does, and it, and it comes back again to this, this issue of, of squad depth. Um, in all, all of those areas, COVID, injuries and, and AFCON, Man City are doing better than the others because they only have Mares away at AFCON, whereas Liverpool are missing some massively important players. Chelsea are missing important players. Injuries, they don't have as many injuries. They kind of recovered from their own COVID outbreak a little bit quicker. So those little small margins do make all the difference. Your ability to react ultimately to a setback is what keeps you going and keeps you pushing to, to win the title and that's why I do think as, as I said before it is it's all on them now they could stumble they could fall away but there's a big gap and I don't see I don't see a situation whereby they lose I think they'd have to lose around four games between now and the end of the season and on top of that Chelsea and or Liverpool would have to be perfect in behind I think both of those things to happen is probably a bit too much yeah, and sure, look, we know as well Pep is so experienced in this position. Uh, he rarely does make mess-ups. If he does, it might be one or two, but it won't be. Uh, it doesn't happen multiple times, and he has that squad as well to fix any problems that he has. Look, there are a lot of other games as well, and Manchester United at Aston Villa should be a good one, and particularly, Alan, because F- Philippe Coutinho will be um, back in the Premier League. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to this, Marie. I obviously watched the game during the week, like so many, uh, the Cup game on Monday, and Villa were the better team. How they didn't get a result is beyond me. They were the better team for large spells of that match, and Gerard would be very, very disappointed because that's a game he will know himself that it was a missed opportunity, and the players as well. But Coutinho coming into the team, um, I think he'll add a lot of creativity, inventiveness. Obviously, Buendia is a similar player, but it just it's not clicking right at the moment, maybe with Ings and with Walking. So it'll be interesting to see how he plays Coutinho. Does he fit him in? whip Wendy and just go one up top or does he stick with the two and maybe drop Wendy and go Coutinho so uh, that'll be interesting but he's a top quality player as we know and I think Villa to be fair will fancy their chances that aura of invincibility about Man United is well and truly gone Marie no matter who they play now the other teams fancy their chances Ragnick knows he has massive problems um, it hasn't looked any bit impressive at all since he's come in maybe the first half against Crystal Palace in his first match but since then it's been it's been much of the same as what we've seen all season um, the only difference I suppose in fairness to him is that they've gotten the odd win um, whereas before with Solskjaer maybe they weren't so I think Villa will fancy their chances I think it's important as well it's a big game for Villa because if you think back uh, Gerrard's first six games they won four of their first six and the only two defeats I think were Man City and Liverpool who you'd expect them to lose that but their last three they've lost Marie so this is the first time I think since he's come back to the Premier League I know it's only a short period of time but in those 9 or 10 games he's on the back foot a little bit Gerard having lost the last 3 so he'll want a big response from Villa and I think they'll fancy their chances So Fergal Manchester United as Alan said they've lost that air of invincibility we've seen Cristiano Ronaldo over the last few days as well talking to the media quite a lot and questioning his teammates attitude and effort you can read into that in many ways is he trying to motivate them is he trying to deflect but the latest news is that it looks like um, he is injured and um, in ways just given the amount of um, conversation about whether or not he is part of the problem of Manchester United it would be just quite interesting to see if he is just ruled out what happens to the team well I think it, it goes back again to the, the constant argument over Cristiano Ronaldo this season his detractors and, and people that are in favour of him the one thing that he has brought to the United team is, is goals but almost in every other area he is lacking we all know the famous argument if he doesn't press he doesn't run enough there is issues with his attitude with his mentality the way that he approaches things this this leak of these quotes that he's come out with essentially calling out and criticising his teammates who are in a difficult situation as it is does does demonstrate the type of personality that, that he is and the way that he looks to operate yes he does offer some level of a guarantee of goals they have coincidentally probably dried up a little bit this side of their, this side of the new year but given the way that he's been playing for them before Rangnick came in, I actually think that's one of the big changes. Under Solskjaer, he was effectively keeping Solskjaer in his job. His goals were making sure that Solskjaer wasn't removed immediately in the first few weeks and months of the season. That's now stopped with Rangnick because Rangnick has said from the word go that he wants to bring a new mentality, he wants to bring a new system in. Cristiano Ronaldo's not interested in that. Cristiano Ronaldo, for me, is interested in Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, and and it's, it was never going to end well uh, for me in terms of Ronaldo's return to Manchester United. He will score a few goals. He will get them some important points. But overall, the culture, the toxicness that was already in place under Solskjaer doesn't show any signs of improving because Rangnick, as, as Alan said, hasn't really got the results to build up to say, look look at what good job I'm doing. And then you've got people like Cristiano Ronaldo coming out and saying this. And other senior players do look pretty disillusioned with, uh, with what's going on at Old Trafford right now. Alan, what are your thoughts on it? 
Yeah, I just think the culture, and, and as Fergal mentioned, it's so toxic at the moment and it appears, but it's been like that for a long time. And that's why I felt when the appointment was made, I think you needed a strong, not like not, not like an almost like a, an old school authoritarian manager, but you just wanted someone to come in to shake things up. And I look at Conte and obviously he was the obvious one and maybe what he's done at Spurs to shake a few of them up, I know they've lost the last couple, but... Certainly, he'll he'll spend in the in the in the January window. I've no doubt about that. But I felt he would have been a far better fit because if you've Ragnar coming in and potentially in six months going upstairs, which is what we're all being told he's doing, he's not going to shake things up in the next six months and upset the job that he's going to walk into <coughs> in the summer. Maybe so. Um, whether you know some people have suggested that maybe he thinks he will he will hold on to the job and, and keep the job, but whether that's the case, I don't know, Marie. So I just think it was a wrong fit, totally. But I also think. And I don't want to go back to Solskjaer, but I think this has been festering for the last 18 months, two years. All we ever used to hear about Solskjaer was this was a great group of players and a great attitude. They're not, Marie. We can see that every week that they play. It's not a good group of players. It's not, they have no good attitude because that can only happen once or twice where they might be off kilter a little bit or, or you can have an off night. Anyone's allowed that. But this is continual every single week that we watch Man United. It's the same problems, the same issues. And people can throw out Ronaldo and that's the narrative. But you could go through every individual there and not one of them is playing up to scratch or playing up to the standard that you would expect from a Man United team and I go back to that with Solskjaer because he, he allowed this fester allowed get get them away with it he never stood up to maybe the big players and the big egos in the dressing room the way he should have because eventually he was going to fall himself and I felt he should have taken two or three down with him uh, instead of him going out the way he did now he's gone out with a lot of dignity and people will always remember that and the great player that he was and he'll always have his good name at Man United but I think this has been allowed to fester um, and almost manifest itself into what we're seeing now and Ragnick is certainly I don't think the man to shake things up because there's some bad eggs and bad apples in that dressing room as far as I can see Yeah, there's a big job needed that's for sure and Fergal Arsenal and Spurs could be postponed Arsenal are requesting it they have um, almost 12 players out between injury and COVID and just looking at Arteta and listening to him it's clear he, he just doesn't want to play yeah, um, I covered the game at Anfield last night and there was, there was talk of it potentially being called off or, or Arsenal at least putting in a request to have it called off and, and that was the case. They were due to fly back to London last night from Liverpool. Standard process at the moment is that they will be tested post-game so there was at least one or two players that were involved in the matchday squad last night that tested positive. They had to stay in Liverpool to then travel back to London separately. So disruption in terms of the planning, in terms of the logistics to, to build up for what's a massive game. It's a derby game. Tottenham naturally will be frustrated. They're doing relatively well in the Premier League and obviously they got knocked out in the Carabao Cup to, uh, against Chelsea. But it, it comes back to the same point all along with, with requests for postponements. Managers, Jurgen Klopp, Sean Dyche, Mikel Arteta are perfectly entitled to ask and make these requests. The rules are there in black and white if you have these players absent for a legitimate reason, whether it's COVID, injury, African Cup of Nations, etc., they can do that. The onus is on the Premier League then to say yes or no. There's very little anger being directed towards the Premier League. Mm -hmm. It's being levied on managers and clubs when they're doing exactly what they are allowed to do. They're not pushing the issue. They're making the request. If the request is rejected, then that's on the, uh, the burden of the Premier League. But as it stands, I think it's 13, maybe 14 players uh, that could be unavailable for a mixture of reasons. So, thus, Mikel Arteta is perfectly um, allowed to make this request. I do think 
they probably will have it called off the Premier League nine times out of ten when they've received one of these postponement requests have granted it um, I'd be shocked if it goes ahead on Sunday um, based on the fact that Arsenal have got a relatively strong case and the rules are the rules as, as, as they stand in the Premier League whilst they want to fit all these games in and make sure they get played they can't be risking the safety of players and people that are involved with, with a match day operation at, at Arsenal Football Club well, I think what we're nearly two years in and I don't think I'm ever fully going to be on top of what the right protocols, processes, rights, wrongs and rules of COVID-19 are. But hopefully, um, hopefully in a short space of time, it'll be all over and I won't have to anyway. Uh, Fergal and Alan, thank you so much for joining us here this evening. It's time for a break and we still have racing with Jane Mangan to come and also rugby with Michael Corcoran. With Green Farm, your rise and grind isn't real. Our protein is get real. Game on on 2FM. Now it's time for racing and I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Jane Mangan. Jane, there's a few notable races this weekend. Bob Ollinger is going to step up to Grade 3 company at Punchestown on Sunday. But will he be as good over fences, do you think? Yeah, that's the question, Marie. I um, I was impressed with him in Goran. I was there. Um, I saw physically in the ring before the race that he's improved for the run. Um, and some shrewd judges were questioning the technique of his jumping. Well, that was a beginner's chase in Goran, but a beginner's chase in name, not nature. Because, okay, Bacardi's the second. He's been well beaten since. But Master McShee finished third that day, and Master McShee has come out and won a grade one at Limerick since. So... Bob Ollinger was awesome over hurdles. He was rated 159. He was a banker for many punters at Cheltenham where he duly obliged in the Ballymore. And he's going to have to be pretty good again um, on Sunday because Capadano and Galliard de Menil, they line up against each other again. Capadano came out on top uh, of that duo when they met at Nace. Lifetime ambition is decent. But Bob Ollinger looked over hurdles like he was a potential Gold Cup horse. The horse he beat on that occasion, Brave Man's Game, has taken all before him in the UK. So if this guy is going to maintain his advantage over the UK participants, he's going to have to land the spoils on Sunday. And what was the criticism of his technique? It was when he was on a good stride, when he was meeting every fence perfectly in a rhythm, he was obviously very good. But when he was getting a fraction in tight, so when he had to take a short step uh, to manoeuvre over the fence, some people were saying that his... Uh, when he did, he didn't bend his back that well, and he he basically brushed his hind end through the birch, which sometimes that can be a novelty thing. Sometimes you can teach a horse to perfect how to to jump. But I thought that was maybe a harsh criticism. Perhaps if a horse isn't as natural uh, over fences as maybe they should be, they'll get more exposed uh, the quicker the pace they travel, and they'd definitely be going quicker on Sunday than they were in Goring last month. Okay, well, I'll be keeping an eye on that now. So, Willie Mullins looks to have a stronghold on the Grade 2 Moscow Flyer Novice Hurdle on that same car, Jane, but that probably only tells half the story, really. Yeah, I, I think this is fascinating because so many of these are unexposed. I'm a huge Dysart Dynamo fan. I was as a bumper horse, and when he won uh, his maiden hurdle at Cork, he couldn't have been more impressive. And How You Game, the brother to Easy Game, also in Willie Mullins' stable, he was very good at Nace. Um, I, I, you couldn't, you couldn't fault his display that day. Gilly Billy in there for Henry de Bromhead. He made all at Tremor last time, but you'd expect him to have done that 
in a race of its nature. This is a big step up for him. And I think Gringo Dabrell is a fraction forgotten about. Gordon Elliott sent him over for the Chalo Hurdle. He finished third. He was well beaten, all the all the well beaten. But he's got that grade one form. But it's a case of sometimes Willie Mullins has short odd horses in these in these types of races. But he's got two legitimate, very, very exciting horses. And I'm glad to see they're taking each other on because we're about to find out who's good and who's not so good. And what about the UK then, Jane? Yeah, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of racing across the UK without being any top drawer stuff. There's big lucrative cards at Warwick, but I actually am interested in Kempton, the Sylvaniaco Conti Chase, the Grade 2 Chase. Disappointing, it's only attracted four runners, but a good four they are. Mr. Fisher is top of the market for Nicky Henderson. He was last seen no match for Tornado Flyer in the King George. El Dorado Allen is interesting for Brendan Powell and Colin Tizard. Uh, he beat Hitman in, in, in November back in, in Exeter. Rouge Viff up and trip and he's second run for Paul Nichols. I think he's better than we saw him uh, last time behind Nuba Negra. And Desi Desoy is the outsider of the quartet. Desi Desoy, do you remember that name? Winner of the Triumph, mm-hmm. winner of many good races uh, at Punchestown and Cheltenham. He just seems to be having lost his way. I wonder, can he bounce back at the age of nine? But... They're a fair quartet for the Sylvania Conti Chase at Kempton. The same card that hosts the Lanzarote Hurdle, but that's the handicap that I just can't figure out. Okay, well, lots to keep an eye on there. Jane Mangan, thank you very much for joining us now before we finish up. But let's cross over to Michael Corcoran, who is on duty for Munster's Heineken Champions Cup game against Cast. And Michael, a little bit of news from the Cast camp today. They have six cases of COVID-19 in their camp, but the match does go ahead. Yeah, um, they, they, it's it's a bit of a testing time for everybody and indeed for a team like Cast. Uh, if you compare and contrast their team uh, against Munster tonight to the side that played in the top 14 against Stade Francais last week, they've only got two of the starting 15 from last week involved in the match um, uh, tonight uh, in, in, uh, in the uh, Champions Cup. So that'll tell you uh, the story with them. They've got three players who are involved in the academy drafted in, so... You know, not unlike many other clubs around the place, uh, they're affected by COVID. But you know, they, they have enough players. They have enough players registered, so the match, yeah, it certainly goes ahead. Yeah, I guess there's probably little sympathy now because nearly every club has been there at this stage. They've all gone through um, their own situation with COVID. So, but even still, do you think this will give Munster that bit of added confidence, just given everything that's been going on in the background over the last month or so? I'm not sure if it would give them a whole degree of confidence, Marie, to be fair. I described, you know, in a previous match, uh, the, the match at Thoman Park a few weeks ago, Cast are, are, I described them as the Wimbledon of this competition where they just really try and prevent every other team from playing without offering an awful lot themselves. Um, you know, they got all, all kicks last week in a, in a victory, one, one drop goal, four penalties last week uh, from Ben Bottega. Uh, I don't really expect that they're going to uh, uh, play an expansive game against Munster. So it's going to be up to Munster to come out of their shell, for want of a better phrase, um, and, um, and, and try and take this game to uh, cast. There's a huge opportunity there for Munster to make it uh, towards the knockout stage of the competition but they've got to do so against um, a French team who are pretty stubborn in terms of defence. We heard your interview with Johan van Graan yesterday on the show and, you know, very much focused on the importance of getting that performance out of each side. Bernard Jackman feels there is that performance in them. Do you think so? I do. Um, You know, but I I mean, the one thing I will say is that um, 
They can't afford to take a step back at the beginning um, of this game um, tonight simply because of the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the French teams, if, if they get a foothold in the match at all, um, and the crowd, which is limited to 5,000 people, get behind them. I mean, it's going to be pretty noisy inside the stadium. Um, but having said that, I mean, if Munster can can get stuck into the game right from the very beginning, I think they've got a, a seriously good chance, but they can fall, follow the referee and give away a lot of penalties or indeed concede scores early on in the match. So, Michael, if anybody wants to tune in and hear your dulcet tones on commentary for that game tonight, where can we find you? It's on Radio 1 Extra from uh, from 8 o'clock. Bernard Jackman with me. So it's uh, it's a start kicking off a big weekend of European rugby. Fantastic. Michael Corcoran, thank you so much for joining us.